You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. It is an honor to be here, especially as a representative of the Walker family. And let me simply say I salute the United States Golf Association and the Royal and Ancient and all of you who love and respect the traditions of the game. And may I particularly salute the British and the American team and may the better team win. Thank you all very much. Many presidents have enjoyed playing golf and being around the game over the last century. From William Howard Taft deftly swinging a club to Woodrow Wilson using red golf balls so he could find them in the snow. From Dwight Eisenhower hanging out with his friend Arnold Palmer to JFK cruising around a golf course on Cape Cod. But none of these men had a stronger connection to the game than the 41st president did. George Herbert Walker Bush was born in Massachusetts in 1924, learning the game as a toddler. His summers were spent in Maine, and he hung around Cape Arundel Golf Club with his family. His father, Prescott Bush, was an avid player and served a term as president of the USGA in 1935. But his USGA ties started with his maternal grandfather, George Herbert Walker, who also served as USGA president in 1920, and was the inspiration behind the Walker Cup match. This biennial competition is contested between amateur players from the USA and Great Britain and Ireland, and the winning side earns a trophy donated by Walker that bears his name. Even with a pedigree in the game, George H.W. Bush might not have been the best player, but he always played golf with passion and with respect for its traditions. Thanks, Mom. You're looking down on us, trying to get me to be a good sport. And like his father and grandfather, he too passed the spirit of the game down to his family. It's an important part of our family, and uh, he loved it. My brothers and I, you know, really liked to play, and it was a good way to bond. I, some of my fond memories were playing golf with him as a youngster and also as I got older in life. The best way to describe it would be like going a stroll in the park with somebody you care about. While it may have been a stroll for George W. Bush, his father always played quickly. Pace of play was his thing. And those who were lucky enough to play with him knew there was only one speed with Mr. Bush, full throttle but always with a sense of humor and enjoyment. Oh, God, that's wet and ugly. Lord, I need a chainsaw to get out of there. (laughs) Watch your bridge work, boys. George Bush first served our country when he enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1941 and then started his political career 25 years later as a member of the House of Representatives. After stints as an ambassador and CIA director, He then became vice president under Ronald Reagan, and in 1989, he became president. After leaving office in 1993, he never slowed down, and his pace of involvement off the golf course was just as fervent as his fast play on it. He became the inaugural honorary chairman of the first tee when it was launched in 1997, and his commitment helped lend credibility to the program that has grown to reach millions of youngsters in all 50 states. He has served the USGA, PGA Tour, and PGA of America in various capacities and was elected to the World Golf Hall of Fame. In 2008, the USGA awarded him the Bob Jones Award, presented annually to someone who exhibits the character and personal qualities embodied by Jones. He is one of a few non-golfers to receive the award in the more than six decades it has been given. So many of the game's greats showed their admiration for his dedication to the principles and life lessons golf provides. And while he was lucky enough to have so many famous friends who would love to play around with him, what we will always remember about the man is he was just like one of us, always struggling to master the game, yet never quite getting there. Mr. Smooth, please just get on the dance floor. Fight. 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 Great shot. Smooth is that. George Bush spent more than 90 years around the game. His love for golf never wavered. And because of that, his positive impact on the sport will be felt for generations. 
Mulligan. 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 Mulligan.
And ladies and gentlemen, George Bush is that man. I once said that he's a great vice president, but I know and I've seen that it didn't come easily. George Bush is a man of action, a man accustomed to command. The vice president, he doesn't fit easily on such a man. But George Bush is also a patriot, and so he made it fit, and he served with a distinction no one has ever matched. Season 10, George H.W. Bush, The Sweep of History. More things happened during the presidency of George H.W. Bush than at any other four-year period of time that I can think of in the history of this country with rare exception. You're going to see a president who has to deal with a war breaking out in the Middle East between uh, Iraq invading Kuwait and us having to build a coalition of countries from around the world to go in there and force him out. You're also going to see the president uh, when faced with an with a extraordinary pick to go on the Supreme Court and, and a fight that will break out that will be a precursor for everything that we've seen in the, in the generation since uh, when it comes to filling a Supreme Court seat. And then freedom will begin sweeping across uh, Eastern Europe and into the Soviet Union itself. And for those of you who did not grow up during the Cold War, it is hard for you to conceive the difference in the world that's going to happen in this year period of time, about a year and a half, from the time uh, the Romanian dictatorship fell and the president starts dealing with a a, a strategic arms uh, negotiation agreement that, that, that will happen in the early part of 1990 to the invasion of Kuwait and the, then the war in, in Iraq and Kuwait it's, it's in, and then the Soviet Union and the, and the upheaval that will hit the world uh, in 1991 uh, as a coup is attempted and then the, the, the Soviet Union itself dissolves. It's an extraordinary year. And we had at the helm of our country at this period of time a president who had known war uh, like few others had. He was a, the youngest fighter pilot uh, in the United States Navy during World War II. And he had seen death and destruction in the Pacific Theater of World War II, which it's hard for people to understand who didn't live through it. I didn't live through it. Uh, the effect that war and the things that those people saw had on them they knew how awful war, war was, and Bush at the helm of, 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 of our government and leading the free world as the Soviet bloc begins to dissolve and the country itself dissolves, you will see him deftly move to do no harm. And as Robert Gates, who was a Secretary of Defense, loved to point out, points out in several of his books, uh, when a major political power of the size of the Soviet Union falls apart, dissolves. It almost it never happens without a major catastrophic war. World War One, World War Two. But here, George Bush is part of, of a leadership team that uh, that helps guide the world through it without a shot being fired. And it's his history, I think, as a veteran of World War Two that that's a big part of that. And uh uh, World War II Museum produced a video about President Bush and his life and career that here on this season premiere we thought we'd look back on as we begin that march that begins with a meeting between President Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev in Washington, D.C. to negotiate an arms reduction agreement in 1990. Like many young men his age, George Herbert Walker Bush was horrified at the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. I think my reaction was the same as every other American's. 
We got to do something about this one. So in June 1942, he answered the call to serve and enlisted in the U.S. Navy on the day he graduated from high school, which was also his 18th birthday. After 10 months of training, Bush became one of the youngest naval aviators flying the TBM Avenger torpedo bomber. He experienced air combat for the first time in the Pacific when he was assigned to Torpedo Squadron 51, or VT-51, aboard the carrier USS San Jacinto. When you look back on it, it sounds so harrowing, and yet uh, at that time we were all just doing our duty. We were young men in combat and doing what a lot of other young men were doing. On June 19, 1944, Bush was flying a mission in the Mariana Islands when his plane lost fuel pressure and he was forced to make a water landing while his aircraft was still loaded with bombs. And I must confess to a certain uh, anxiety about that even now because I was afraid those depth charges might, uh, might go off even though I had not armed them. But Bush and the crew were uninjured and escaped to a life raft before the plane sank to the ocean floor. On September 2, 1944, Bush was flying against Japanese fortifications at Chichijima in the Bonin Islands. Some way about halfway down the run, I was hit. And you could feel the plane uh, go push forward like that, up and forward. And then suddenly it was all engulfed in flames. And I finished my bombing run, but by the time I pulled out over the ocean, uh, the plane was really burning. Bush bailed out, but the other two men and his crew were killed. His parachute was damaged, but it slowed his plunge into the water. He survived in a rubber raft for four hours, while other American pilots protectively flew over him. I remember being scared, and uh, I remember wondering what happened to the crewmen that were with me. That preoccupied a lot of my thinking. Bush's rescue by the submarine SS Finback was documented in this remarkable film footage. He later rejoined his squadron on board the USS San Jacinto. But the deaths of his crew left a lasting impression and reinforced his values of courage, duty, and service for the rest of his life. I feel a lot of that very clearly, even though it was many, many years ago. In all, Bush flew 58 combat missions and received the Distinguished Flying Cross, three air medals, and the Presidential Citation for the USS San Jacinto. In 1966, Bush was elected for the first of two terms to the U.S. House of Representatives. His political star continued to rise as he served as ambassador to the United Nations and China, director of the CIA, and as vice president for eight years under Ronald Reagan. Repeat after me. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully... His presidency witnessed the fall of the Berlin Wall and reunification of Germany, issues which had remained unresolved since the end of World War II. Going back to Dwight Eisenhower, Bush was the last of a continuous line of World War II veterans who subsequently served as President of the United States. Through his association with Dr. Stephen Ambrose, the founder of the National World War II Museum, President Bush was an early and enthusiastic supporter. He attended the grand opening of the Pacific Wing of the museum in 2001, and was unabashed in his praise for its mission. In honor of his long and distinguished service to our country, the museum presented him with the American Spirit Award in 2007. George Herbert Walker Bush was the personification of the American spirit. From his combat duty as the youngest pilot in the U.S. Navy to his election as the 41st President of the United States, President Bush honored his country and its citizens with his commitment and service. He died on November 30th, 2018, at the age of 94. He's buried alongside Barbara, his wife of 73 years, and their daughter Robin, 
at the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library in College Station, Texas. I said you can never overstate the importance of that war experience that President Bush had. And it's going to show in this next year and a half, um, extraordinarily so. Uh, I, I would say that if you wanted to do a textbook study uh, of how to handle a war and how to handle the collapse of a, an opposing regime around the world, across the world, it is extraordinarily powerful. George H.W. Bush's administration, the team he put together, the uh, strategy he had to do no harm uh, in, in, the, in the case of the Soviet Union or to go to, hey, this is our mandate, overwhelming force, do exactly what we say we're going to do and leave and not get into nation building and all the rest of it. That has been the mistake of Vietnam and, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq later, uh, this is the guy to look at, and uh, one of his first early successes would come in what we're going to look at today, and that was in July of 1991, but when they had a bilateral treaty that went between the United States and the Soviet Union, and it was on the reduction of the limitation of strategic offensive arms. Uh, the treaty signed on the 31st of July, uh, entered into a, a force in 1994, uh, barred its... Uh, folks from deploying more than 6,000 nuclear warheads and a total of 1,600 intercontinental ballistic missiles uh, and bombers. It was negotiated at, at the largest and most complex arms control treaty in history, and its final implementation in late 2001 resulted in the removal of about 80% of all strategic nuclear weapons then in, in existence. It had been originally proposed by Ronald Reagan, but it was renamed, renamed START-1 after the negotiations began. Uh, for START II, which would happen in 2009. But this was the culmination of Ronald Reagan's vision and George Bush's implementation of that uh, to, to, to reduce the threat of nuclear war for everybody in the world. Uh, it can't be overstated. And this is a little bit of that story today on the sweep of history, our season premiere. One of the good things about the meeting, uh, great powers have differences. Uh, sometimes they haven't been able to talk about them in a civil way. We are talking about them in a very civil way, and I, I commend them for that approach. Because either it's one side. I like, it's one I understand, and it's one I, I think benefits not just the United States and the Soviet Union, but a lot of other countries. But would, a well. trade, would a trade bill be uh, contingent on what you hear on Lithuania? Well, we're. we're Discuss the details of that. Probably get into some of that. Does he feel that he had a proposal to talk about on Germany means that he's more ready to come your way than you are to his? Service. We're not dealing on that much. We agreed to some guidance. He and I. And I'm going to stick with it, and he did. And I think that's a good sign. We're in the middle of some discussion about where it's going. Why do you President, think it is going so well? Both of you have talked about uh, a, a really good relationship that the two of you have talked the hours you spent. Why do you think this time there has been such a... Is it a good chemistry? Well, I don't know. That's a good question. And uh, I feel very comfortable with that. I feel very free to bring up positions that I know he doesn't agree with. And as I say, that hasn't always been the case. In time, some people banged their shoes when they didn't agree. So we don't know that's not the mood or the tone of this meeting. We'll both realize we're engaged in very, very historic and important work. And, uh, when these meetings over, uh, people in this country are going to be pleased with some of the positions he takes uh, concerning, concerning your interests. Hopefully, I can. Uh, Reassuring to uh, people in the Soviet Union about the kind of relationship we want. Mr. President, so the tone of it is important so that we can try to quote narrow differences. Mr. President, Mr. President you said you does either side have a better understanding of the other's position on Lithuania now? Have you narrowed any differences? That subject is not. It's
discussed, but not in the plenary meeting, not in the neighborhood yet. You said you were heartened by uh, the discussion on Germany. Was there any uh, reason for similar encouragement on Lithuania? As I say, that matter has not been discussed, and I can't quantify for you my hopes on each important question, and that is an important question. Hey, Mr. President, have you off anything since his comment yesterday about dictating to the Soviet Union? I don't recall the meeting with the test. I mean, said in Canada? Well, I, I think when I said out there that we're dealing from positions of unique responsibility, I think he understood that I have a certain respect for the standing of the Soviet Union and uh, not attempting to dictate on that I clearly am entitled to and will put forward the views of the American side as forcefully as I can. But you don't get the heartless if you if you are the impression that you're in a situation of dictation. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Do you think there's anything you can or should do to help him in the short term? I'm going to do what's in the national interest of the United States, our security interest, our global interest, and working closely with the Soviet Union, a lot of questions is in our interest. So with that approach in mind, I think maybe we can, we can, uh, we can go away feeling that he's got people here that are not just dealing with some innate animosity towards the Soviet Union. We're in a fantastic era of change. We focus on the problems of meeting projects, but we ought not to neglect the fact that we're sitting here talking uh, to the head of the Soviet Union at a time when Eastern Europe, for the most part, enjoys the democratic process and enjoys a freedom that none of us would have predicted possible. And a lot of that is because of the way in which Mr. Gorbachev has conducted himself. So, uh, there's some problems out there, but, but we ought not to overlook the fact that we've come a long, long way. So it's that kind of approach that I'm bringing to you. Sir, sir, was there any progress today on STAR or CFE, sir? Turn this way, please. No, well, that's going on, but not, didn't come up. Our first day was not discussed. <laughs> Can you watch him out of the car, sir? Did you watch him when he got out of the car down on 15th Street? No, I didn't see that. He walked out. Was it? Big crowd, yeah. Katie's taking your advice about parades and When he left, he indicated that he was hoping there would be more in-depth discussions. Weren't there in-depth discussions today? I thought they were in-depth. He didn't seem to feel that way. I got that impression. I think he thinks we're going to end this. Did you talk with him about the uh, the handshaking out on the streets, pressing the flash work? No, we didn't. We didn't discuss that. Did you come out here uh, because you feel you thought you weren't in the game and he was getting all the uh, publicity by talking? Well, I knew you'd want to debrief. You don't know I'm jealous about airtime. It's one of my driving factors. Be sure you're on for 30 seconds. You know how I am. I'll see you guys. Thank you. You guys stop laughing. Turn this way. <laughs> From the State Department Archive, uh, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties of 1991 and 1993. The Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties, known as START I and START II, were agreements to reduce the number of long-range nuclear weapons in the United States and the former Soviet Union. START I was signed by the United States and the Soviet Union in 1991, and it was followed by the conclusion of the START II Treaty between the United States and Russia in 1993. When Ronald Reagan assumed the U.S. presidency in 1981, provisions for continuing the Strategic Arms Limitations Talks, SALT, that yielded two arms agreements between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 1970s were already in place. The first round of SALT produced the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, ABM, and the framework for reducing the caps on nuclear warhead delivery systems. And the second round, SALT II, produced a treaty limiting these delivery uh, systems that was signed but never ratified. In spite of the difficulties involved in ratification of the second agreement, both sides adhered to the terms of SALT II and expressed an interest in moving forward with a third round of talks. In late 1981, Reagan proposed that the talks be renamed the Strategic Arms Reductions Talks to, to place the focus of the subsequent negotiations on deep cuts in existing weapons and not simply limits on future deployments. As a part of this announcement, Reagan also suggested bilateral negotiations on the elimination of intermediate-range nuclear weapons. The initial proposals... The initial proposals offered by the Reagan administration to the Soviet Union called for a 50% reduction in total strategic weapons. U.S. officials realized that such a drastic change in policy would likely be rejected by the Soviets, but they had their own reasons to make the suggestion. In the 1980s, a growing nuclear freeze movement called for the elimination of nuclear weapons, spurred on in part by the promulgation of scientific studies that forecast a nuclear winter effect. This scientific prediction assumed that the use of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world would effectively destroy the Earth's capacity for sustaining human life. 
The Reagan proposals for broad reductions in nuclear arms reflected an effort by Reagan by the Reagan administration officials to deflect the criticism directed by them, at them by anti-nuclear activists for continuing the arms race. By proposing reductions that the Soviets were sure to resist, the Reagan administration could blame the ongoing arms race on the Soviet Union and justify a continued U.S. development of strategic weapons. At the same time, however, this approach to arms control led Moscow to abandon talks in 1983. After Mikhail Gorbachev took over in the Soviet Union in 1985, the two countries resumed arms controls discussions. At a summit meeting in Reykjavik, Iceland in 1986, Reagan once again proposed a 50% reduction in the long-range strategic weapons. At this point, Gorbachev was far more inclined to consider the proposal and act upon it because economic problems in the Soviet Union made ending or at least curtailing the expensive nuclear arms race a necessity. What prevented a deal at this juncture was not the ambitious nature of the proposal, but the ongoing U.S. research into a missile defense system under President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative. The Soviets argued that under the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty developing a missile defense system was illegal, and they demanded that the United States halt research on the project before any agreement be reached on long-range strategic weapons reduction. A 1987 agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union provided a way around this impasse by calling for a 50% reduction in long-range strategic weapons and a new treaty to reconfirm a mutual com- commitment to the ABM treaty. Although this agreement appeared to have solved the problem, the treaty was not completed before the end of the Reagan administration. By the early 1990s, after President Reagan had been out of office a few years, domestic support in the United States for a, the Strategic Defense Initiative dwindled and Cold War tensions were dying away with the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. Instead, there was a renewed desire to see an arms reduction treaty signed. And in 1991, President George H.W. Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev met in Moscow and finally signed the First START Agreement, which required the two countries to reduce their total number of nuclear warheads and bombs by one-third. Later that year, however, the collapse of the Soviet Union raised doubts about the efficacy of the treaty. As Soviet nuclear weapons and delivery systems were spread out between three republics and Russia, each of which was now independent of Soviet control, one by one the republics ratified the START Treaty and agreed either to destroy the weapons housed in their territory or turn them over to Russia. A second START agreement signed by President Bush and Russian President Boris Yeltsin in 1993 called for further reductions in strategic weapons. START II, therefore, translated to an overall 50% reduction in nuclear weapons, limiting each country to a total of between 3,000 and 3,500 strategic weapons. The United States ratified the START II agreement in 1996, and Russia followed suit in 2000. That, from the archive, covers the full range of agreements uh, that began in this July meeting in 1990 uh, for the START treaties, There'll be two of them, as as you heard, and and it's it it really changed the world. And I, you know, I, I, like I said at the beginning of this, you may not have a full feel um, if you didn't grow up in the Cold War what that was like uh, to have this empire on the other side of the world that was uh, determined to export communism uh, to all these countries. That you know, the whole Vietnam uh, era is a is a the war is about stopping a domino effect in Southeast Asia so communism doesn't spread across you know, Southeast Asia and Asia uh, any farther than where it had been, which was China and, and of course, North Korea. Uh, and so that was what that battle was about. And, you know, Richard Nixon, having changed the trajectory of, of, of the course of this Cold War uh, by by dividing the communist world and setting them against each other and becoming closer to China and closer to Russia than they were to each other, the Soviet Union, than they were to each other, uh, kind of, uh, it slowed that down. But, you but, you know, you have some chaos over here you, in, uh, after Vietnam, and the Soviet Union goes in and gets themselves into Afghanistan. They end up with all these leaders that can't, they don't live long. Uh, you know, Mr. Brezhnev passes away, followed by Yuri Andropov, followed very briefly by a guy named Konstantin Cherninko. And it is Gorbachev, uh, this much younger man that comes in and, 
you know, with the Reagan buildup, he sees he can't compete. And they come to the table to start trying to negotiate. That's kind of the whole history of, 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 of it. And uh, like I said, if you didn't live through it, you probably don't have that concept of these two polar powers uh, on you know opposite sides of the world that are kind of treating the world like a chessboard and maneuvering the players and all these other nations. Uh, but George Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev, this episode I think shows you, and I think some of the ones we looked at with Ronald Reagan, the importance of relationships. Uh, once we got here, the importance of the trust that was there between Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, and Ronald Reagan to start with, and George Bush, is what makes this work. And that's one thing that I hope we're we're preaching a little bit on on our show here about the importance of building relationships, be it in foreign policy or in Congress. You can't get things done if you don't have a good relationship with and trust the people you're dealing with. And that's what we've kind of lost in this new age. And I hope we can try to get back to. But you see it in this press conference here in, in July of 1990 uh, between the president and uh, the Soviet premier, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. So I have a problem. What uh, shall I talk about? <laughs> Наверное, хочу немного порассуждать в связи с этим. So I think that uh, I will do some thinking aloud in this context. По-моему, это тот случай, когда можно сказать, что может быть в этом зале много происходило событий, многое объявлялось соглашений, но то, что происходит в эти дни, и о чем вы сказали, представляя итог нашей совместной работы, это я отношу к событиям огромного значения и не только для наших двух стран и наших народов, но и для всего мира. I would say that maybe this room has seen many important events and many agreements signed, but I think that what is happening now and what you have uh, listed as the results of our work together represents an event of momentous importance not only for our two countries but for the world. Господин Франклин Рузвельт полвека назад говорил о мире будущего, в котором восторжествует четыре свободы. Свобода слова, Свобода совести, свобода от нужды и свобода от страха. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, half a century ago, spoke of a world in which four essential freedoms will triumph. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Этот идеал еще не достигнут ни в одной стране. И он и не мог быть достигнут в мире враждебности и конфронтации. Поэтому освобождение человечества от страха приближает нас к новому миру. Мы делаем эти первые шаги в этом направлении, объединяя наши усилия. Я прежде всего имею усилия двух великих народов и двух могущественных государств, какими являются Соединенные Штаты Америки и Советский Союз. And this ideal has not yet been attained in the world, and it could not be attained in the world of animosity and confrontation. And therefore, while liberating the world from fear, we are making steps toward a new world. And this is the important work of our two nations, of our two peoples. Maybe it's extraordinarily important that we чтобы стать твердо на путь оздоровления международных отношений и прийти к ненасильственному миру. What is very important, I think, is that we do not just declare our commitment to moving toward a healthier international environment, toward better international relations, toward non, a non-violent world. Но мы делаем практические шаги. И but, то, 
о чем вы сказали, перечислив все, что здесь сейчас будет подписано, или во время этого визита, это подтверждение тому, что мы и декларации наши провозглашаем в нужном направлении с тем, чтобы реализовать ожидания народа и не только наших стран, но и подкрепляем эти декларации практическими шагами. Сегодня делаются крупные шаги в этом направлении. Это большое достижение и иллюстрация большой степени согласия между двумя нашими государствами и правительствами, несмотря на то, и я с вами полностью согласен, что нас еще разделяет многие позиции, взгляды, но их, этих различий становится все меньше по пути нашего совместного движения, совместной работы. We are taking practical steps in that direction, and what you have just listed and what we'll be signing during this visit, I think, is a confirmation that both our declarations are right in uh, that they seek to justify the hopes of our peoples and that we're also taking those practical steps, the important steps that we are taking today illustrate the degree of agreement between our two countries, despite the fact that, and here I quite agree with you, that there are things on which we disagree and uh, there are differing views that we have on certain questions. But that area of disagreement is being narrowed in the course of our work together. То, что мы согласовали, то, что мы подпишем, может быть, это самые убедительные аргументы о нашей готовности участвовать на уровне своей ответственности в строительстве здания новой цивилизации. What uh, we will be signing, I think, is the best, the best demonstration that we are ready to participate at the level of our responsibility in building a new civilization. Нас еще ждут многие непростые дела. Очевидно, демонтаж такого грандиозного по своим масштабам монумента холодной войны, каким предстает теперь накопленный потенциал уничтожения, взаимного уничтожения, далеко не простое и даже небезопасное дело. It is evident that to dismantle that monumental artifact of the Cold War, the accumulated arsenals of mutual destruction, is not at all a simple or even an entirely safe thing to do. Малейший перекос, непродуманная спешка или невыверенный баланс при его разборке могут привести к опасной дестабилизации всей международной ситуации. The slightest imbalance and due haste or a lack of equilibrium in this process may dangerously destabilize the overall international situation. И наоборот, если мы будем расчетливы, ответственны и учитывать озабоченности друг друга, будем внимательны к позициям друг друга, даже тогда, когда мы расходимся, я, я уверен, что при соблюдении этих слов мы сможем двинуться вперед But I'm sure that if we take a balanced and responsible approach, if we take into account the concerns and positions of each other, even when we disagree, if we do all that, I'm sure that we will be able to move ahead more resolutely and more vigorously. Mr. President, you have just mentioned Malta. Я с удовлетворением констатирую, что бурные события прошедших месяцев после нашей встречи на Мальте не отклонили нас от совместно намеченной цели. Я считаю, что первое испытание мы выдержали. Have not led us astray from the goal we set together. So I believe that we have passed the first test. English newspaper, The Guardian. A question to uh, President Bush, if I may, to follow up my colleague's one. Are there circumstances under which 
you would be prepared to recommend the total dissolution of NATO. What's the threat that still keeps it in business? I President Gorbachev, если я могу тоже, сколько времени по вашему должен продолжаться еще переходный период до конца прав и ответственности четырех прав четырех государств? Переводят. Пока господин президент ответит, а я послушаю точный перевод. As I looked at the world, the threat is unpredictability and, and, and uh, stability. How do you, inst or instability is a threat. Uh, we feel that a continued U.S. presence uh, in Europe uh, should not be seen as hostile to the Soviet interests, but indeed we hope a continued U.S. presence there will be seen uh, as something that's stabilizing. And NATO is the, the existing machinery uh, that we feel, uh, with an expanded uh, mission, uh, can best, uh, best provide that uh, stability. And herein we have a difference with the Soviet Union. But it, it is that, rather than some kind of Cold War mentality, uh, that, uh, that uh, drives, drives our decision, Uh, to one, remain in Europe, and two, to try to have a, have a broader role for NATO. Under Article 2 of the NATO Treaty, there is language put in there, I'm told, by Lester Pearson years ago that provides a broader um, uh, than, than just military assignment for NATO. So we see this as not exclusive to an expanded role for CSCE, not contradictory to the aspirations of many Europeans for an expanded EC, but as a way in which we can continue without hostility to anyone to, to uh, provide uh, a stabilizing presence. I'd like to respond to this extremely important question, if I may. First, as an overall statement of the fact. It seems to me that if some kind of option is suggested, one that would replace or would be accompanied by replacing an isolation on the European continent, either of the United States of America or of the Soviet Union, then I would say, in no uncertain terms, and I could even make a forecast, that that particular option would be doomed. It would be doomed in the sense that it would be difficult to put into effect, but what matters most, it would lead to the exacerbation rather than improvement in the situation. For that reason, we believe that we will not be able to make any further progress in restructuring international relations, including in the main European area, without an active participation of the United States of America and the Soviet Union. These are realities. And there's also a great sense of responsibility behind those realities. This is the first point. The second point now. Yes, indeed, we believe that the option which we think will be found eventually and which will provide powerful momentum, and which would contribute to the strengthening of the European process, must necessarily include some kind of a transition period during which we could join our efforts to conclude a final document exhausting thereby the rights uh, we are endowed with as the victorious four powers under the results of the Second World War. These are the issues that were raised by history itself, and so, therefore, in the framework of international law, it must be brought to conclusion. A concurrent unification of Germany and its presence would mean the coincidence of these two events. This would mean that this would be an independent and sovereign state. I really don't know, and I wouldn't like to engage in 
speculation about the time limits, but I think that we must be very, very active now. So that, uh, so as to ensure some kind of synchronization between the internal processes which lead to the unification of Germany and uh, the settlement of uh, external aspects so that they would be combined. I can see and I offered many options in our position. Those options are there and it seems to me there are some points, uh, there are some points the American side has uh, noticed. I'm expressing my supposition. I'm not saying that I heard this from President, but I think they have something to think about and I think we will give serious thinking to the U.S. position, too. John Cochran. Now, President Gorbachev, on the subject of NATO membership for a united Germany, you have complained in the past about Western sensitivity to your security concerns. But some of your aides say privately that Germany, a united Germany could belong to NATO and your security concerns could be satisfied both by a limited American presence in Germany and primarily by strict limits on German troops and armaments. The real problem, they say, is psychological, a matter of national pride. They say that if you accept Germany in NATO, it will be a humiliating admission for the Soviet people that you've lost the Cold War. In your talks with President Bush, were you frank about this? Is this a problem for you? And President Bush, have you considered this problem yourself in your own thoughts? First, I do not think that whatever I am saying on this extremely important question of world politics appears to be a complaint from me or from the Soviet Union. This would be humiliating for the Soviet Union to uh, pass his head around, to come here to Washington or to Bonn or elsewhere. This is uh, out of the question, and please bear that in mind. This is the first point. The second point is, you know, there is a process underway, a uh, beneficial process, and uh, look how far we have progressed in this process. We are entitled to raise the question in these terms. Each subsequent step must strengthen it rather than weaken it. We have a, a right to that. Take, for example, our negotiations on 50% reductions in strategic offensive arms. If you were depicted, if this whole negotiating process were to be depicted to you in its entirety, you would certainly see the kind of battles we are having on each and every point. Why? Because nobody really wants his security to be diminished. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>